Hello, welcome to my 25-minute painting stream, stream of consciousness, and just talking while I paint. I've been working on these little cut-out pieces of masonite that I've been cutting out on the laser cutter, and then I just paint one each individually, and then assemble them on the wall in these kind of explosive compositions. And, you know, that got me thinking about figuration, how the figure has been present in paintings over the years. Of course, we can think of historical paintings and giant multi-figural compositions, these sort of things. And we can think about Francis Bacon his violent approach to the figure, showing some sort of like inner psychology through brushwork. But I think kind of where I am more is a place that's closer towards abstract expressionism. So I've been reading about the Bay Area figurative movement lately. And for those who don't know, the Bay Area figurative movement was a, a group of artists in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, and they kind of rejected abstract expressionism. So we often think of the 1950s being a time where Jackson Pollock and Robert Motherwell and these types of people are aggressively splashing paint all over the canvas. And there was a reaction to this sort of abstract gestural work, but it started becoming representational again. It happened in California in the 1950s, primarily the, the San Francisco Bay Area, that's why it's called the Bay Area Figurative Movement. It's usually broken down into three different groups. Uh, the, the first generation, the bridge generation, and the second generation. A lot of the first generation artists are the ones that are most widely known. David Park, considered to be one of the founders of abstract expressionism. Richard Diebenkorn, certainly one of the most famous. Elmer Bischoff, Wayne Thiebaud, all these types of people. The bridge generation that comes after them would be people like Nathan Oliveira, Paul Warner. And uh, the second generation artists. Um, a lot of these people actually had the first generation artists as their teachers. And that would be people like Joan Brown, Man Manuel Neri, Bruce McGaugh. And uh, yeah, a lot of these people actually, it's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, painting is often locational in a way 
when we think about the Renaissance and Italy, you know. Of course, there's the German Renaissance as well with Albrecht Dürer and these types of people, but often painting happens in these tiny little locations. And it's something going on in that specific place at that specific time that leads to a certain type of painting. And so all these people were centered around San Francisco. You can imagine now it's, it's kind of difficult. We can't really have a painting center anymore, can we? There isn't exactly a New York or Paris of the old days. There's certainly art centers. Places like Berlin, New York is still important. But there's all these smaller art cities all over the place now too. Kind of sustaining their own small community of artists. And that's one thing about painting, I suppose. You know, a, a thing that has an actual market with these giant fairs, paintings that sell for tens of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, is that I think oftentimes people get caught up in just making it in New York, and certainly that still matters, but we can also think about what we're doing in our own communities what painting actually means to people. When we think about how so many people will show up on a Sunday to a painting course. It's kind of amazing. What are all these people trying to do? I suppose most of my subscribers, obviously, they all want to paint too. But what is it we're actually trying to achieve with these works? I'd say that oftentimes paintings are just vehicles for ideas. So we can be enamored by technique and these sort of things, but if we look a little bit underneath the surface, we can see broader ideas happening. And I suppose that can bring us back towards the Bay Area people and what was going on with them. People like David Park. Park was an interesting case because he actually started off as an abstract expressionist painter. He's based in San Francisco as well. And uh, it was in uh, 1951, I believe, that David Park did his first figurative canvas, like first figurative painting that he had in this exhibition. It was one of those, like there was a curator and he was juried and all that sort of thing. And he actually won. He won the prize for that in 1951. So it wasn't like he was some person, you know, off in a garret, off in his little studio barn in the middle of nowhere slaving away, being a genius. He was part of a city and he saw 
an exhibition opportunity. And he's like, oh, maybe I should try that. And so he submitted his work and got it accepted. And then that canvas that he made actually won. So he had colleagues that appreciated what he did. But, you know, his whole progression is still a little bit of a mystery because basically they believe that around 1951 or so, like previously, David Park had been making all these abstract expressionist works. And then he just decided to start putting figures in them. And it's believed that he just took all his old paintings, all his abstract paintings, loaded them up into a truck, and either burned them all out in the desert, or just dumped them at the dump. And so we don't really have any of his early works to look at to really see that progression. Of course now, you know, you could never do that now. Everything you take, everything you make, you take a picture of, right? Upload it to the internet. It's probably one of the first things a lot of artists do after they make a painting now, is take a photo of it. There's probably some sort of change that happens in the way we create when we know we can share things so instantly. I suppose it's pretty hard to keep things secret. You go to a show, I think oftentimes galleries will discourage artists from sharing too many in-process images of their work because they want people to see it for the first time at the show. But that's not really how it works anymore. But in 1951, you could just load up all your paintings into a truck and burn them all or just dump them. John Baldessari is another famous artist who did that as well. He just recently passed away. But if you want to learn more about him, there's a great video narrated by Tom Waits all about John Baldessari. But he he burned all of his paintings as well. But he became more of a conceptual artist rather than painting. He became known for putting dots on people's faces on photos, and collecting all these photos and archiving them into different sections. But with Park they just all vanish. We can, you know, imagine he's probably um, somebody who was inspired by Max Beckman, who is a German artist, primarily known for self-portraits that he did throughout his life. And he did tons and tons and tons of self-portraits. Picasso and Rembrandt, of course, always making self-portraits. It's a good thing to remember if you're ever wondering, you know, what should I paint? 
you can always paint a self-portrait. You're always there in the mirror. I haven't really done a self-portrait in a long time. It might be a good idea. But Beckman was, you know, this German artist. He was before him, though. He would have been making these um, rather intense multifigural compositions that are historical narrative paintings. One of his most famous paintings is called The Night. This would have been around 1918, 1919. But Beckman is also somebody who rejected non-representational painting. He really carried the torch of figurative painting. Um, and Beckman, of course, was also inspired by people like Cezanne and Van Gogh, William Blake, Rembrandt, Rubens, Bosch, Bruegel, Grunewald, all these, you know, different, really important figurative painters. Grunewald, one of my favorites, he's part of the German Renaissance, really brutal depictions of the body. If you want to look at some of his crucifixion pieces, the way he paints Jesus is quite brutal. The body is really contorted. But you can see that same sort of aggression in the figure in Beckman as well. Um, and just this type of, the bodies in, in Beckman's paintings are, there's a certain intensity about them. And he was somebody who also, you know, had to fight against these abstract elements. Of course, we have Kandinsky and Paul Clay and these types of people at the exact same time. And they're just dealing with line and form and color, shape. And Beckman was like, nah, we gotta have people. People are still important in painting. So in some ways, the, the Bay Area half a world away, San Francisco is a far cry from Berlin in the 1920s compared with San Francisco in the 1950s. World War I versus World War II, actually having the like ravages of war on your own home country, experiencing it. Germany, of course, experiencing both of these in a very intense way. America in a somewhat removed way. But there was some 
you know, of course, some of these artists were World War II veterans in the Bay Area figurative movement as well. Specifically, Elmer Bischoff. And he didn't really get famous till his 30s or 40s. It's another thing that's kind of changed over the years as well. Now we expect artists to be young and new, and they're like pop music, kind of. But back then, an artist would maybe get famous in his late 30s, early 40s. Willem de Kooning as well. De Kooning is another person not associated with the Bay Area figurative movement, but he just popped into my head. As somebody who also has a very aggressive approach to the figure. But yeah, Elmer Bischoff, he was another one of the Bay Area guys. And he, uh, he did a bunch of paintings that he called the Picasso-esque mouthings. And he made all these after he returned from the war in 1945. Who knows? Uh, I haven't really read much about how the war changed him or what he said about that. But I do know that he he wanted to to challenge all of his own assumptions that he had about art and life. So I imagine World War II being there was a pretty transformative experience for him. But he did a lot of figures and interiors. And he also was somebody who, you know, he he was okay. A lot of these artists were were really fine. Again, the it was kind of a myth of the starving artist with David Park and Elmer Bischoff and Diebenkorn. A lot of these artists did pretty well during their lives, and they sold paintings, and that's all they did. Diebenkorn, of course, he's he's part of the same, you know, original, original members, you know, the first generation artists of the Bay Area, figurative artists. There's probably been more made since then, since these three, I imagine. Of course, now it's, this stuff is definitely coming back. A lot of figurative work, figures back in painting, still quite important. But Diebenkorn is another person, you know, came through abstract expressionism painting and settled on the figure. This happened with a lot of painters. Diebenkorn was kind of interesting because he actually went back to abstraction. He started off in abstract expressionism and then he started doing some figurative work and then he you know developed his Ocean Park series which is probably his most famous series of his works so he went back to abstract you know just complete abstraction 
But yeah, this was this was pretty common. Philip Gustin, similarly, is another one. Started off as an abstract painter, became a representational painter. He also has a lot of writing about painting. He's a good person to look at in that regard. Or read, I should say. Good person to read. And so, you know, all through these artists, um, you get a second wave, so to speak, with the bridge generation of Bay Area figurative painters. Nathan Oliveira is the one that sticks out in my mind. Started off as a musician, but he tends to have um, works that are, how would you exactly say it? They're works which are aggressively made. His mark making is quite aggressive, frenetic. Made a lot of prints as well. But he's uh, same area. He's in Oakland, Nathan Oliveira. First generation immigrant born to Portuguese parents. He died about 10, ten years ago. And he's somebody who you know, looked at what the Bay Area figurative artists were doing and was kind of the next phase of it, which is always interesting to see how artists look at stuff from previous generations, take a little bit and mix it with their own and end up with something completely new. So he took a little bit of that and people like Bischoff and these types. Somebody also really, you know, into German Expressionism and Max Beckman. There's always a certain intensity in a lot of these portraits. And of course, they're, you know, they're experiencing these paintings. Maybe they get to take a photograph of it if they're at a museum where they can buy a book of works but they're not exactly um, in that community of makers you know this is 40 years after Max Beckman paints this which is another interesting thing about painting you just never know when these paintings are gonna pop up and become famous again, really, or how they're going to be influential. Oftentimes we don't know, you can't trace exactly when a painting is going to become important. <laughs> Sometimes they're forgotten, they pop up 30 years later or 100 years later. Of course now everyone loves Hilma Af Klint. And I think she, when she was painting, it was around 1900, abstract, kind of mystical abstract paintings. When she was painting, she put some sort of a 
requirement into her will that would keep the paintings hidden for decades. And so now a lot of these paintings are resurfacing. But of course, these people, you know, Bay Area figurative artists and German expressionism, the links between these two things is quite interesting, just how cultures intersect, sometimes with knowing and sometimes without knowing. So we're getting up close to 25 minutes, which is according to the Pomodoro technique. It means it's time for me to take a break. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something about the Bay Area figurative artists. If you've got any questions, just write them down below.